Hello and welcome to the Happier at Work podcast with your host, Aoife O'Brien. The podcast for anyone who wants to be happier at work. We spend so much of our time at work. Everyone deserves to be happier at work. Today's episode marks the start of the Future of Work series. Now, this is something I had thought about doing a good few months ago and was planning on doing a Future of Work series anyway. But now we find ourselves in this kind of global pandemic and I thought it'd be really interesting to bring it forward and really get a sense of how people are feeling about what the future of work means, because I think this global pandemic is going to have a huge impact on how we work and what we do. So today's guest is Stephen Dargan. Myself and Stephen met through Team and Bart a few months ago. We haven't met in person yet, but we've had some great conversations on the phone about what it means to have a happier workplace. Stephen is a huge advocate of creating happier workplaces. I really, really enjoyed the conversation I had with him today, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. So welcome, Stephen, to the Happier at Work podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to listeners? Thanks very much, Aoife. Um, I'm Stephen, Stephen Dargan. Um, God, it's hard to introduce myself in what I did. I worked in management for years, and now I no longer work in management. And now I consult with, uh, with organizations and help managers to be able to create workplaces that are far happier than they may have been before, help to change culture within that organization and inherently I'm just interested in the things that make us feel feel good about life and um, when you think about it if you're going to spend eight nine hours of your day in work and uh, there's no point to be miserable for that part of your day and then being happy for the rest because it's not going to happen it's going to impact all the other stuff so I'm a firm believer that um, people who are happy at work if you can create workplaces where people feel happy it filters into their family life their relationships their community and the wider society in general and um and that's our goal. That's what I do. Um, my company is Wake Up. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about that later. But Happy Workplaces is what I do a lot of. Uh, and we've got a conference coming up we'll talk about at the very end in October where we get um, experts in the field of uh, not just workplace happiness, but workplace looking at work differently and the future of work and how they've done this in their organizations or how they can help us to be able to look at how we can possibly change the way work should be. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything that you talk about, Stephen, just totally resonates with me. Um, it was Team and Bart initially who connected us and we had a, a great conversation about happier workplaces. And oftentimes people think it's kind of, it's this fluffy approach. And I know someone said to me recently, like, oh, talking about happy workplaces, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay someone money to do that. Um, but to me, it's much more than the, the kind of fluffy approach. It's, it's much more about the kind of tangible things that make a difference to people and drive productivity and work, really. It is, yeah. Well, there's been lots of studies done on this. Uh, I know Warwick University back in 2014 did a good study on this. And there's, be, there's been various studies, but they, they discovered that workplaces where people feel happier about themselves are 12% more productive. So alone in that... And there's greater productivity. There's also less turnover of staff. Um, uh, there's more creativity because the part of your brain doesn't shut down when it's in a stressed. Well, it shuts down when it's in a stressed state. So, if we create an environment where people are anxious and overworked, well, that creativity can't happen in that environment. And we know that people who work in happy workplaces are more likely to go that extra mile for the company, and they're going to have the energy to be able to do it because they're not burnt out from. Uh, working in a stressed and overloaded environment. Um, 
So it makes total sense. It's really interesting what you say about you came across somebody who said they wouldn't pay anybody to come and talk about happy workplaces. I'd love to see where they work and what it's actually like. Because <laughs> don't, don't, don't we use the wrong language when it comes to work? Because we use the work. Per, first, we, we, we create the work, work with hard. So everything has to be hard work. Yeah. So nobody can go in and just do work. They have to do hard work. Yeah. It's a hard day's work. Um, <laughs> it's a battle. It's a battle in the, in, in the boardroom. And mm-hmm. we just use this fighting language and this militarized language all the time around work. And I don't really know why that is because it shouldn't be. It's probably because it's very male, dom- well, it has been very male dominated. That's beginning to change. Um, and I think, yeah, we use the wrong language around work should be. Work can actually be a really rewarding and nice experience. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, that's the way it should be. And that's, you know, that's why I started this podcast in the first place. Now, the individual who said that to me was an older gentleman. He has huge experience in consulting and he's an academic as well. So I'm wondering, does that maybe have something to do with it? Maybe it's just kind of an old school way of thinking that the language I'm using to, in his per- perception and his perspective is a little bit fluffy. Yeah, it's almost like when you talk to your, your parents or your grandparents and they talk about life when they were growing up, that they were tougher and harder and they, they dealt with knocks in certain ways and they had none of these luxuries that you have. And that's the way life should be, you know. It's almost why Brexit happened, because people wanted to go back to 1950 when life <laughs> felt different for the English. But, um, yeah, that's the case. And sometimes when people get through their working life and they've worked for 40 years and they got through it the hard way, and they expect everybody should be able to do it and walk down their road and, and have the same results as they had. But the truth is that's not the case. And all the research and science that we're looking at now has shown that if you can create a workplace where people feel good about themselves, and that's what we teach, um, the results are phenomenal. Not just product, productivity goes up, everything else goes up. Here's a really interesting stat. This is really interesting. I know as a guy called Alex Edmonds who works for the Wharton Business School and, and he's moved on now and I explain where he's moved on to now. Back in 2009, actually, he did um, some research and he began to look at the stock exchange and he went back as far as the stock exchange in 1984 and saw that if you'd invested in the standard uh, market index uh, stock exchange, if, if you'd invested money then after 25 years and it had accrued £100,000 after 25 years, the, pen, uh, the, the, the fund uh, had created that amount. If you'd done the opposite, if you hadn't gone for that standard way everybody approached the um, stock exchange, but you had researched and looked at the great places to work, so these were the organizations that had valued employee engagement and, and valued employee culture and, and, and workplace happiness. If you had focused on those, those companies for 25 years, you would have seen a difference. It's called, um, it would have been, uh, it's called a, a point, it's about a 0.29% alpha. And, and listen, this is, sounds really technical, but what it is, is, is if, you were, if you had 11% improvement on your fund um, over a year, um, if the if the stock uh, stock market had risen by twelve percent, you would have been down one percent. Okay, so this is why the alpha matters. So this means that uh, they made a three point five percent increase per year, right, on these great places to work, right, uh, the money that was invested on these, and they discovered that after twenty five years, instead of one hundred thousand, they had one hundred and thirty six percent more profit. So they made two hundred thirty six thousand pounds just by investing in companies that are great places to work. Now, that goes further, because also what Alex Edmonds did, he got involved with a guy called Dan Arley. And you've probably heard of Dan Arley. He's like a behavioral economist, yes. And Dan is really interesting because he looks at the importance of um, 
uh, he, he looks at motivation and the stuff that drives us in work and the stuff that doesn't drive us in work. And what Dan did was he created a fund called the Irrational Capital Hedge Fund. And the Irrational Capital Hedge Fund um, is him and Alex Edmonds as well and a couple of others. And what they do is they do not look at the financials of any organization. That's not in their parameters. They look at employee engagements. They look at employee happiness. And they, they follow these trends with the organization and then they invest in them. And just by doing that over the last six years, they have beaten Standard & Poor's top 500 on the stock exchange by 100%. Not by 10% or 5%, by 100%. Wow. That's a phenomenal yeah. statistic. So That's impressive. Not, not just buying employed by a, a happy workplace, but investing in a happy workplace. Yeah. Your in. Yeah. Wow. Um, now, Stephen, we're, we've kind of gone very slightly off topic. We're here today to talk about uh, the future of work. And I wanted to talk about the future of work anyway, because I think it's a really important topic. And I've, I've heard kind of people saying in the past, like the future is here already. The future is now in relation to the future of work. Um, but obviously, with the situation we find ourselves in, it's kind of brought things to the fore a lot more quickly. So I'd love to get your views on what you see as the, the key things to bear in mind around where work is going. So for anybody who's probably listened to this in the future, uh, we're talking about the pandemic that happened in 2020 that <laughs> hopefully died and some, some, sometime during the summer and was, was never came back. But yeah, uh, the fact that work has changed for a lot of people in the last seven or eight weeks, most people have been either out of work or they've paused to work or they're trying to find uh, ways to be able to work differently. And I think what's really interesting about the last seven or eight weeks is that um, while people have had more time because they've been given this more time to pause and reflect on their lives and their experience of of what life is at the moment, I think people are looking at self a lot more. Mm -hmm. They're looking at their situation and they're becoming very connected to what do they really want out of life and what do they really want to, to gain from life. And they've been looking at the life they had up to this point. And now because we're enabling ourselves to be able to work remotely, and many of us are doing that, um, they're beginning to discover that, God, I'm feeling a lot calmer. The fact that I don't have to do my 50 mile round trip or my 100 mile round trip for many people in Ireland to the working place are not sitting on the train every day. And they're beginning to question why they did that for so long in the first place. So I think one of the things that may come out of this is people are going to have options and they will say it to their organizations when they go back, do I need to be here five days a week? And um, the answer will be, you probably don't. And if you can work a way to work three or two or whatever it might be, yeah, you you can give the, the employees the flexibility to do that. So I think the way we work is going to change or where we're going to work from is going to change. Secondly, um, I think the progression of technology um, has, has helped us a lot. If this had happened 25 years ago, a couple of things would have happened. First of all, you and I wouldn't be here on this podcast uh, engaging in this format because we wouldn't have had the technology to allow ourselves. So 25 years ago would have been completely weird. And I know that we sometimes rally against technology, but this is a time where technology has come to the forefront and we embrace it and it's brilliant. Um, some people are delivering, pro some people are finding they don't need to fly to Bonn or to Berlin or to Bern uh, to uh, do the monthly meetings for the European organization when they can quite gladly do it on Zoom or Microsoft Teams or anything else. So that cuts out the necessity to do that. And people are beginning to realize, I like that option too as well. Um, 
the technology when it comes to training as well, we're beginning to learn how to, because that's what I do. I facilitate lots of programs online. We're beginning to find ways to be able to do this and we can find some really interesting things to be able to do online that actually make up for the fact that we're not in that training room or that boardroom or, uh, or that hotel with, with, the, um, with, with the people that are in the room. Um, and we're finding ways to be able to do this. It's never going to fully make up for the fact that being in that room is always going to be better. And I think we're going to look at the options we have available to us. If this is great internationally. If I can talk to people from San Francisco who I could never meet in a room together, um, this is great for being able to do that. But for a group of people who are only eight miles up the road, but I still can't travel up eight miles up the road to spend time with them in a room, um, we would always rather be in the room with those people because we like that, that sort of human engagement. And I think the other things that are going to matter are people begin to realize do I really need to work for as long every week as I do at the moment? Mm. Can I fit my 40-hour working week into a much shorter experience? And I believe this even before this even happens, that we are so inefficient and ineffective at work um, that most of our day is, is, is filled with what we call uh, disruptions or distractions, whether it's a meeting that doesn't make sense because somebody wants to hear their voice <laughs> or somebody wants to say something, has, has, has a brain fart that just came up and they want everybody to know about it <laughs> or, or even by email think yes. yeah think about this in 2000 and few 2002 i think it was about fewer than um 10 of employees check their their work emails outside of the working experience right that was 2002 now it's past 50 percent on that so mm-hmm. now we're, those emails are becoming not just immediate in the working environment but they're becoming immediate on our saturday night mm-hmm. and there's also an instantaneous need for a reply because the person who sent you the email says you can't escape this email you got it on your smartphone i know you got it on your smartphone i know it came up in your notifications you have seen it replied to me yeah and i think we're beginning to question should that be part of our life experience should i be answering emails at the weekend anymore and we're probably doing less of that now while we're in the in 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 this lockdown period we're doing the work while we're given the eight hours that, that we're working remotely at our desks and then um, we're being left alone for the weekend um, in this pandemic. Um, but beforehand, that wasn't the case. It wasn't. So I think we're beginning to question the way we worked and why we worked so long. Why do we travel so far? And was there a need for it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it kind of touching on what you said there about, you know, you might dip into your, and I know I'm guilty of this as well, when I worked in corporate, checking your emails out of hours and, the, for me, it's it's that expectation that someone has sent an email at a time when they know that you're not supposed to be working, almost with an expectation that you'll pick it up before you go back into work and you'll reply to that because it needs an answer, you know? So it, it it's almost, I suppose, twofold. So us managing ourselves and not responding to that at the time or looking at it but not responding but then there's the expectation of the other person as well so any any kind of thoughts around that yeah i think we've uh, I, I think we've got to a stage where um people run it we live in such a switched on age and it's, it's the idea that we should be switched on for work or we're not being as loyal to, to the workplace as possible as we really really should be and, and I firmly believe, I know the French went down the road where after six o'clock, they, they were trying to bring in some laws that could, yeah, people didn't yeah. have, legally have to respond to an email after six o'clock. And I completely get that. Um, I think this idea um, 
I know I, I refer quite a lot because uh, I'm a big fan of a guy called Jason Fried and J- Jason Fried or Fried who runs the company Basecamp. And I love the way he approaches work, the whole idea that, listen, you've been given eight hours. There's plenty of t- time in eight hours to get your working day done. And I'm the same with this. There's something broken within your organization if you're sending out emails on Saturday night. That's not saying that emergencies don't happen and something big needs to be, uh, needs to be um you know, worked on at that particular moment in time. And, and they should be really, really, uh, you know, infrequent things that happen two or possibly three times a year. Um, but other than that, your work system or your work culture or something is broken within your organization if you're sending out emails at the weekend. And um, for people, you know, uh, the, the biggest problem is that there's so much of the attention economy striving for our attention, whether it's social media, whether it's television, whether it's everything else. And work on top of that at the weekend is draining us. And we need to arrive back into work on a Monday morning feeling refreshed and alive and ready for that working experience for the four or five days that we're going to work rather than feel that I, I haven't had a rest because work has, has followed me and tracked me down through the weekend and wouldn't let me let me, let me rest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like what you were saying about the, the time spent at work. So in one of the previous episodes of the podcast, I spoke with Andrew Barnes from Four Day Week, the, the kind of global, um, this kind of global phenomenon about mm-hmm. moving towards having a four day week instead of a typical five day week, which is, you know, five day week is completely arbitrary. You know, there's no reason for us to be working five days a week. But he's putting forward that we should be working or we could potentially be working four days instead of five days and still get paid the same amount of money. Because in his own company example and lots of other examples since then, productivity has actually increased by reducing the working hours, which I think is, is um, I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable, but it's believable at the same time. I think that is a perfectly... Um reasonable question that every single organization should be asking of themselves can they do this in the future and i think they can put the right stuff in place um, i think we begin to fill the gaps in work with with more sort of work for the sake of filling the gaps with stuff and i think we're very good at that think about how efficient you aren't when you go to work most of us when we arrive into the office especially if you're in an open plan office it's really hard to escape the fact that you're probably listening into conversations on the weekends, football and other stuff. And that's fine, those things. But there are many other distractions like an email, as you talked about, that needs to be replied on straight away because I sent it to you, even though you're only two desks away and I could have stood <laughs> up and asked you that question or even just let you, let you be. And one of the things that I do in workplaces is I, I, I get the, um, uh, the, the, pe- the people on the teams in the organizations and it's not, it's, not a new, it's not a new thing, but I get them to put either, they can put a teddy bear or they can put a flag at their desk. And if the teddy bear or the flag is at the desk, it's a do not disturb sign. It's telling me I'm in the middle of something that is really, really working for me. I'm in flow, as we call it. And I'm in this state of flow and I'm getting my work done and I'm feeling really efficient. And if you walk in at this moment in time and disrupt me, the idea might go or I might lose the, you know, uh, what I'm working on. It's the same thing that happened, wasn't it, to Samuel Taylor Coleridge? When he was writing um, Kubla Khan, wasn't it? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was, it was that very famous um, poem he was writing. Um, okay. And he only wrote 54 lines of it. And he was right lost in, in, in the writing of it. And then somebody knocked on the door. Um, mm. And the person knocked from the doors from the local village. And then he lost all ability to be able to write the rest of the poem. But there you go. 
And that's what we're like at work. So we're constantly being disrupted by seeming, can you sign this, Steve? Or could you just give me the answer to such and such? Just leave me to do my work. Mm. And if I get my work done, then let's a lot of time, say, at the end of the day, where we have a half an hour for all those things that you thought were major or important, where we can all sort of pitch in and I can answer them then. But until that point, just let me be. And you'll probably find once you put that in place and work that the four-day work is very, very um, doable for many organizations. Cut out the stuff that, that doesn't make sense. Just let's get our work done. Yeah. And I'm going back to Jason Freed from Basecamp, and they do this really, really well. They do it so well that in the summer months, they actually work a four-day week from May the 31st all the way through till um, August the 31st. And they know they're getting their work done, and they don't track their people. And they, because what they do is they, they, they don't provide people with, with the thoughts that they have to work working hours. They give them projects and the project could come in early or it could come in late. Uh, it never comes in late, but it could take longer, or it could take shorter, but that's fine. And we don't care if, if it took shorter for you to do this project. The idea was you had six weeks to do the project and here you are and it's done shorter rather than shorter or sooner. I think you're sometimes, Stephen, you're too kind in, in terms of saying what people are doing, whether they're getting interrupted. One of the things that Andrew mentioned will be like, you know, checking your Facebook, booking your holidays, all sorts of stuff that people can do online when they're at work. You know, that's not directly related to, to the work in any way. So, you know, there, there's lots and lots of different distractions and disruptions, as, as you were saying, when it comes to work. And if we have a reduced amount of time, and, and I like what you were saying about like, this idea of having, well, to me anyway, having more time, you kind of find stuff to fill that time. So if you have a deadline that's two weeks away, you're going to find ways to keep working on that same project that's two weeks away, when in fact, you could probably deliver something that is good enough. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's good enough within a week or within a few days instead. Yeah, it's Parkinson's law. (laughs) <laughs> so it is that we fill out time for no matter what project we have so if you were to open a restaurant say if you had a, fic- a fictional restaurant that you had to open up in two months time i guarantee you that the night before that that restaurant is about to open um, you're still going to be whitewashing the walls or whatever or preparing yeah. the tables and still in the panic until the <laughs> fact the doors need to open but if that two months came to that point where you, you had to you had the two months given and somebody said you've an extra week we're not open until a week later i guarantee you the week later even though you're given that extra week, you still are working on whitewashing the walls oh, and trying yeah. to, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I can I can totally relate to that because I would. That's exactly what I would do as well. Um, yeah, no, it's interesting. You're gonna you're gonna fill the time, and and we've seen that kind of live with with the pandemic that's happened, and so many businesses having to shift online and have to shift how they how they work where people are working from home who had never worked at home before, you know, they got to get laptops quickly. They got to get their working from home equipment. They got to find a place to work and they have to do it all really quickly. Mm-hmm. There was no like two week or two month deadline. It was, and it just shows what can be done if you're under a bit of pressure to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it, and with a will, there is a way to be able to organize this stuff. One, one of the things that I, that I find from this is that companies are scared of asking that question around the four-day working week because they're frightened what the answer might be, that all their employees might say, this is a fantastic idea and let's go for it. And then suddenly the CEO of the organization is going, how can this, how can this even happen? How can, that, how can we even go about this? Because they don't want to go down this rabbit hole that they think doesn't make sense, that how could you work less hours and be as productive as a company that is working um, a 40-hour week? But the truth is to show us that after about, I know... Um, 
Alex Suyung, Kim Pang, I can never get the names right, reckons we've got, we've got about four hours a day uh, where we're productive and the rest is just completely padding. And we've all done it. Friday afternoon in every organization across this country, you are lying if you're saying that's the most productive part of your week. You're not. Yeah. You're filling in time before you go home. Um, <laughs> Counting down the hours. And it, absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah. And I talked before, didn't I? Uh, I've, I've mentioned before to many people about David Graeber and, and, and the anthropologist who talks about this. Many people are called, uh, are, are in jobs that he calls bullshit jobs. And they are jobs that don't really have any, any sort of real sort of meat or body to them. Mm. They're jobs that um, don't feel they have purpose or meaning. But there's also jobs where they're just supplementing um, the, the, the manager or the CEO's needs to have a whole load of people underneath him, subordinates, because it feels powerful and it feels good. And he's talked about it in his book, the amount of people that sent emails to him telling him, I turn up for work every day and I've got one and a half hours work. I'm really honest that I've only one and a half hours work at most a day and I'm just filling in the other six and a half hours with trying to look busy. Think about that feeling you ever had. You, if, you, if you've ever worked in a clothes shop, oh, every time I go into a clothes shop, my heart sinks because I know that feeling must be, you know, the way you've got to look busy, but there's nobody there. Yeah. But you can't just stand behind the counter. You have to look like you're doing something. So those people in clothes shops, I think they must love when I come in because when I come in and I unravel a jumper or a shirt and I don't know how to <laughs> refold it and I just put it in a clump, I'm sure that person behind the counter is going, thank God he came in. Now I have to refold that again. It's something for me to do. Yeah. And these, this is what goes on in work a lot. Um, there's a lot of people in jobs that really don't have that full 40 hour uh, uh, working weekend and they know it and it just makes them feel empty inside. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Office Space? No. Okay, yeah, definitely one you should check out. But there is a scene it down, yeah. where it's it's uh, around the, the turn of the century, actually. So coming from 99 into 2000, and it's a computer software firm that is updating all of the um, the dates to 2000, rather yeah, to sorry, to four-digit codes rather than two-digit codes. You know, Y2K, which... yes. That seems like a very long time ago now, talking about Y2K. Um, but in it, they bring in consultants and, you know, it's 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 a complete uh, parody. And they have the consultants saying, oh, well, you know, we understand that Friday is the best day to fire people. And it's all of this kind of stuff. But in it, one of the, one of the characters, um, they're trying to ascertain exactly what he does on a day-to-day basis. And he's like, oh, well, I... I collect the requisitions from the customers and I give them to the the uh to the engineers and he's like oh so you physically go and collect it oh no well no my secretary does that oh right so you physically bring them to the engineers no no my secretary does that as well so it's kind of like (laughs) right so what is it you would say that you actually do here you know it's this whole (laughs) he basically does nothing and he's trying to justify (laughs) keeping his job David Graeber talks about one one of those examples exactly like what you talked about there. Yeah. There was a guy who worked in Germany as a contractor for the German military, and this is this is his job. So he's based in a particular part of Germany. There's German military bases uh, based around the country. Now, if somebody in that German military base, because this is contracted out and this would have been done in house years ago, wants to uh, move their office, right? So they want to move down um, down the corridor to another office. They're going to have to move their computer equipment, okay? Now, if you and I thought about it, if you want to move your office, if you wanted to move from the room you're in now to the room down the way, you'd carry your laptop or your PC and you'd bring it with you. 
But what actually happens is, is he gets a phone call to say that in this barracks or in this base, there is a particular person with a particular PC and computer and that needs to move uh, two offices down. Now, he says, I'm 400 miles away from most of these places. First of all, I have to rent a car. I have to get in the car. I have to drive it. And I charge around about four to 500 uh, euros a day for my services. I arrive up. I arrive in his office. I pick his computer up. I bring it down to <laughs> turn the corridor. I install it. in, And it's not installing. It's just a plugging in. Yeah. I plug it in uh, two offices down. And I get back into my rental car that they are paying for on expenses. And I drive all the way back home. And that is my job. And he's aware that his job is not needed, it's not required. He's paying his bills. He gets by, maybe he fulfills his life in other ways, but he said it's non necessary and it's pointless. Yeah. That's I example. can see that. <laughs> I can see that. Um, Stephen, I'd love to kind of drill in. You said at the start about these people are going to be thinking about themselves and have a lot more time now to reflect. There will be a lot of people out there who have more time on their hands and they're thinking is this really a fulfilling life? Is this meaningful life? Is this, is the work I do kind of adding meaning? Um, I suppose I'd like to look at that from a couple of different perspectives. So first of all, is the perspective of the individual and like, how are they, or what do you predict that they might do about it um, in the future, given that things might not be, you know, the economy might be impacted and, and, and stuff like that. But on the flip side, there's these organizations. And I, I'd love to share an example that I read this morning on LinkedIn, which was about it's really important how you treat people right now, because they're going to remember your behaviors and your actions during this really difficult time. And when it comes to the longer term, are those employees really going to stay with you? Yes, I think that's the, the really important points. I think one of the things that we've you, you pointed out is that these are difficult times. There's enough anxiety we're experiencing from what happened over the last six or seven weeks. Um, and, and just by turning on the radio every day, it's just been accentuated by listening to that. And we're told that the economy is going to slump by 16%. And for many of us, we might know what that means in real terms, but it's, it, it, it's never a good picture. And will the job that I had before be there? And if it's there, I'm suddenly, I'm, am I required to come back into that role and be um, work harder because we need to get the company up and running? And is it going to be a, a constant now that, that work is constantly going to be seen as difficult and hard and putting our shoulder to the wheel is not going to be just for a short period of time, but it's going to be a constant. And uh, there is a worry that people's lives, uh, I'm sure they think that their life is going to become much more difficult outside of this and, and for the foreseeable future. And, and that is a worry in itself. And I think it's important or incumbent on organizations uh, to be able to uh, find ways to allay those fears. And of course, people are going to put their shoulder to the wheel to get your organization and get the company back up and running. I was only talking to, um, uh, to a manager last night about this, and I said to him, I said, what you need to do is when everybody eventually gets back into the office, because now they're all working remotely at the moment, I think one of the best activities that you can do or the best exercise you can do is get everybody together in the one room and get them to put up on a whiteboard or up on a flip chart. I want to put up all um, the, um, all the workplace, um, say, rules and all the workplace uh, things that you do in the organization that people think don't really make sense that we've been doing for the last number of years um, and that we've thought about this over the last eight weeks or so and we can't really understand why we do it and if we got rid of it would it change things for the better or would it change things for the worse 
and just get a big list of those things up on the on on the uh, the whiteboard, and then begin to discuss one by one. Do we really need to be doing this activity, or have this particular, um, you know, rule in place within the organisation, and can we alter and can we change it? And by doing that, what you're doing is you're giving autonomy and ownership. Not, not fully, but you're giving it back to the workforce and allowing them to make decisions about what way things should move forward. And I think that's really, really important. And now we are beginning to understand um, that there are certain things that we've probably been doing with our organizations for years that, that just don't make sense. Like, I know things have changed a lot for organizations. People don't clock in as much anymore as they would have done when we had factories in different organizations. But I think the whole idea of that... Um, Tracking your, your, your employees doesn't make the employees feel any better. Trusting your employees, because that's one of the big things that we talk about is trust. And I know Tiemann would have talked about trust. This is huge. And trusting your, if you've created a culture where you can trust your employees to know that they're doing the right thing by you, those employees feel empowered and better and less anxious. And then you're less anxious because you don't spend your day trying to track what are they up to and where are they at because you know they're doing the right thing. So I think it's about putting those practices in place to, to lower anxiety levels for people in the future are going to help a lot. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about tracking. I posted something in, I have a Facebook group for the uh, podcast, Happy at Work Facebook group. And I posted in there the other day, just looking like, what do people really care about when it comes to the future of work? And what do people want to know about? One of them was job security, but another one was about this whole thing of, you know, one of the issues that one of the members had was that uh, some people are being, they're kind of, they're given that sense of autonomy. And I think autonomy is hugely important. And I speak about it um, quite a bit as well in, ter- in relation to needs being satisfied at work. It's one of our universal needs that everyone has this need for autonomy. And the, the, um, there are some people who are not being tracked. So they have this great sense of autonomy, but there are some people who are being monitored, you know, and it kind of comes to mind where um, I know we used to have like, say, Skype or, or Microsoft, where you can check where, whether someone is green or if they're red on do not disturb or if they're um, orange means they've been away. And, you know, monitoring whether people have been away from their desk or away from their laptop. Um, it's, I mean, to me, it just... And I, I and I do remember that from when I worked at home, when I worked in corporate, and you would be very aware of making sure that you didn't go to orange or, or yellow. But but realistically, having that sense of autonomy, I think, is far more important. Even if you get your work done in four out of the eight hours, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get your work done. It's more about the results that you produce. Listen, that makes total sense. It does. Uh, one of the things that I do um, every morning now is something that I, I hope to continue, but I now get up extra early, so I go for a walk. And it's beautiful around here where I live, and I go for a walk. And I have low ambient music on it, uh, uh, and that's where my ideas begin to come forward. These things are going to formulate throughout the day are things I'm going to research. And I'd read years ago, because we're big on breaks, this is what I, uh, I help organizations to be able to see the importance of breaks. And I, uh, and I know... Um, the likes of uh, Charles Darwin, I think, wrote 19 books, was it? And Charles Dickens wrote 12 books. And those guys used to work for four hours a morning or so, and four to four and a half hours a morning, and they spent the other three and a half hours walking. And that's where all the ideas come. Stephen King is also big on that. And if those guys can be as productive as writing some of the most memorable books of all time just by doing that, that's where it happens. It's in the gaps is where your employees are finding that. It's not when they're overloaded or over-anxious in situations that they're going to come up with those ideas. I always use a good example of that. There's an iconic building that was built in this world today. 
that everybody knows it the minute they see it. But the guy who was the architect that was involved in designing that at the time wasn't quite sure what way it was going to look. And he was working on it for a number of years before he did, he actually came up with the decision for it. And he was actually sitting in his hotel. He used to live in a hotel while he was working on this because he wasn't from the country. He was Danish. And he had an idea that it was somewhat spherical was the, the, the building design going to be. But he thought spherical buildings have been done before. So we need to have something quite different. We need to have something that everybody would completely recognize. And it was racking his brain for ages. And he was simply sitting at breakfast one morning and he peeled an orange. And he peeled the orange and he took the orange peels apart. And then he stuck them on the plate. And the orange peels that he stuck in the plate became the Sydney Opera House. And he decided that's sphere, because that's exactly, if you put all the sections of the Sydney Opera House together, it is a sphere, it is a globe. But the way he did it um, makes it look like um, what we see now, the most iconic uh, space in the world uh, yeah, when you think about yeah. it as a building. Yeah. So, so those gaps, when we allow ourselves, that comes from it. And so we always say to, to organizations that breaks are really good things. And we've come to a world now where how many of us had spent our lunch break looking at the laptop or, you know, we're not dis disengaging from it, even though we might be looking at Facebook or we might be looking at emails or eating at our desk. That is not good for us. We need to completely disengage from that. So we always recommend people walk away from the, um, from the, the environment, preferably with somebody else. Two is always better than one. But if you're on your one, uh, self get outside and do that and disengage from that so breaks are really good things for resets for ourselves um yeah i would i mean to me i look at that and we in in my last uh corporate role we used to call that thinking time and with the work that we had we didn't really have time to think it was just work 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 all the time and i know from my own perspective running my own business i've it's kind of almost a guilt thing then that you you do need time to think, but you feel a bit guilty because you're not doing actual work or it doesn't feel like work. But it's hugely important to the creativity and to having a little bit of downtime, a little bit of away time or a little bit of a change. Mm -hmm. I think organizations have done that for years. I know Atlassian, the Australian organization, did that for a while. They were the first ones to come up with the 20% time thing. Do you know, you've heard of that where they took a day, a month, I think it was, where the people in the organization could work on whatever they wanted once, yeah. once it was creative. And they would come back and present it the following day. And it was usually a 24-hour project it was. And that is something that Google had taken on board then and began to do. And I think with the 20% time in Google, something like 50% of the revenue has now come from ideas that came from that 20% yeah. time projects. Yes. And I think that's very, very healthy where you take your workforce out of the environment, which is just work and bring them to something completely different. Um, and I think that's, that's the same concept as, as allowing people to understand, allowing you employers to understand that when the employees are, are not being tracked, it doesn't mean that they're not working. They're just not working as you, you thought they might be working, but that's where the magic might be happening behind all that. Trust this is just is really important. Yeah. Like I, I, I've said it before. I said like, these are adults who have bought houses and created families and they probably run sporting clubs at the weekends and they've, they've organized holidays where, you know, they organized the accommodation and the flights and everything worked out swimmingly and everything went fine. And then suddenly when they turn up to your workplace, you go, now, this is what I need you to act like. <laughs> and it's almost like we put them into this teenage box and go, you know, this is what's going to happen. And that's not the case because Richard Branson says this very well. He says, like, we create rules in organizations to catch the 2%. They're the 2% that you know that they aren't thinking or they aren't doing anything creative or they're just using, you know, um, you know, 
um, you know, the downtime to be able to do stuff for themselves. But we create rules for the 98% to catch the 2%. And that's, that's, that's wrong. Human nature means there will always be those idlers, but yet we concentrate on those idlers without thinking about the other ones that matter. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, that's what kind of sprung to mind for me, where you, most people want to do a good job. Most people want to have purpose and meaning in the work that they do. And yet so many people are disengaged at work. And, you know, like you say, it's making rules for that 2%, which impacts on the 98% and probably disengages them somewhat as well, because they're stifled within this system. Yeah. And all you need to do is ask your staff or ask your employees, um, what do you want from work? What, what do you need to feel happier in work? And if you sat them down, they go, well, if you got rid of this barrier and this thing, and why do we do this? And that doesn't make sense. And why do we have to sign out every time we need this? You know, those things can, those barriers can be broken down and life can feel a lot easier for, for, for many people. And it also gives the people in the organization um, uh, and understanding that the employers actually value what they say rather than being told, you know, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Again, they, that they have some input into what's actually happening in the place that they work. Yeah, this is, this is, this is completely important, this is. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, Stephen, just conscious of time here, do you have any more thoughts on the future of work, whether that be the immediate future that we're going to find ourselves in after this um, global pandemic or kind of, a little bit further down the line, any any thoughts on on how things might uh, how things might go then? Okay, so there's a couple of things that I, that I can see happening from this, and a, a couple of things that we're missing from this. Okay, so we, we jokingly talked before we talked about this. Uh, we, we we came online today was we talked about the new normal, where people are saying this is the new normal, right? This <laughs> is not normal. This is not normal, and no one's to accept that this is going to be any new normal. This is not normal for human beings. Um, because human beings love human interaction. And that's why I always say to the remote workers that are loving being at home at the moment, this is great. And I want to give you options and choices so that if you decide to say three days at home and two days in work, that's great. But those two days in work can be also invigorating because that real human connection with people matters. Mm. I know there was uh, some experiments done back in uh, the Second World War. Rene Spitz had done it with babies. They had done this and they discovered that uh, the orphans, orphan, orphaned babies who were in, in a hospital, they were, they were young, very young babies in cots at the time. And all those babies that were at the nurse's station, that had their cot closest to the nurse's station, were nurtured and felt loved and felt uh, and uh, got less illness. And um, he discovered that the reason why the babies that were nearest the nurse's station felt that compared to the babies that were further away and nearest the door was because they were so close to the nurses that the nurses touched them every now and then, reassured them, spoke to them. But the babies that were further away didn't get that and they were more susceptible to, and, and, and there was following reports done with that. And there was another experiment done by a guy called Ed Trunick, I think back about 1975, and he did this with babies too as well. And what it's called the still face experiment. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, it, ring, it rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, so what is, it's really interesting. So what he did was he took a mother and a baby, say a one-year-old and a baby, and the, the mother and the baby played. And as they played, the baby did the normal things, like smiled and pointed at things. And when the, the baby pointed at things, the mother would look, and the baby knew there was cause and effect and what was going on here, and there was interaction. And then he would get the mother to stop. Stop still with no 
with a blank expression on your face for exactly three minutes. And in those three minutes, the baby very rapidly became agitated and anxious and tried to use the tools that they were using before, like point to things and discovered the parent wasn't looking at anything they were pointing at. They tried to smile and get their engagement from that, but couldn't get that. And then rapidly, the kid began to shut down and get very anxious and overwhelmed because it thought something very big had happened here. And they're the first signs of how important human interaction engagement is for us. And it's the same with us. I could sit here remotely on my screen all day and it's kind of nice, but in the end, I want to be around people. So we need to be mindful of that, that we're going to have to need that human connection from this. Um, And the other thing I talked about, I, I think that should come out of this, and this is probably a bigger political thing is, and an economic thing is the whole idea of the universal basic income and the idea that we give ourselves safety nets everybody's in that universal basic income safety net at the moment. They just don't know what it is. So when those people are being paid 350 euros a week um, at the moment, the government have given, that has relieved anxiety for all those people who normally would have been in the throes of anxiety, wondering how they're going to pay the rent bills and et cetera. So the idea is that if everybody got, we'll use a figure of, say, 1,000 euros a month into their bank account was given, and then all the work that they did after that was going to be taxed after that, I think that would relieve anxiety, provide opportunities, provide creativity and allow people to go into roles um, that they really want to go in. And the great thing about that, just to finish off, is that suddenly people begin to move away from the roles and jobs that they don't like doing. And the reason why a lot of people don't like doing roles, because they might be entry-level jobs. They might be jobs that you feel, remember we talked about David Graeber and he was talking about the bullshit jobs. These are the jobs that people are doing that they realize, my job doesn't matter. And if the job wasn't here, the world would still turn and nothing would change. So we get rid of those pointless jobs that are not giving people meaning because we've got to understand that meaning and pleasure are the two keys to happiness. And if we don't have that meaning in life, and we're not get, we, we can't be part of the happiness equation. So what the UBI allows us is to get rid of those meaningless jobs, those jobs that don't really matter, and we move on to jobs that are giving us a sense of purpose and ultimately making us all feel less anxious and happier, better experience of work and life in general. Brilliant. The question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what makes you happier at work? What makes me happier at work? God, that's a hard one. I, actually, I'm, I'm very blessed in the fact that I play to all my strengths in what I do at work. Mm. Um, and I got, um, and, and, and what I do is with organizations, I get the leaders in the organization to find out what their strengths are. We do a particular test with them. And when I did my particular test on that, I discovered that all my five strengths fall directly into what I do. So I just love engaging with people, sharing what makes us feel happier about work. So I love being around people or what makes us feel happier about life, not just work, but happier about life. And being able to do that is setting off these little dopamine drops for me throughout the day in my working experience. So I feel that sense of reward doing what I do in the fact that I'm rewarding other people and organizations by helping them to to do what they do better. Uh, So, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And if people want to find out more about you, what you do, or any events that you have coming up, um, yeah, like, let us know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose um, you can find me at www.wakeup.ie. And I know I've got a team of people working at the moment we're, we're, we're working to change the, uh, the website. But I'm wakeup, info at wakeup.ie or stephen at wakeup.ie. But the other thing, as we talked about, is Happy Workplaces um, Ireland. Um, which I know you're going to be a part of our uh, Happy Workplace Conference, Aoife, in um, October the 1st. Now, initially, we were supposed to be doing that on the 23rd of April. And we do this every year where we get experts in the field of workplace happiness from Ireland and from abroad. 
Um, actually, Tiemann is going to be one of our speakers too, and uh, Tiemann's going to talk about trust. And uh, myself and Henry Henry Stewart, and Henry Stewart has wrote the Happy Manifesto, and I do work with um, Henry's company in the UK. Uh, we do the four-day workplace uh, program for, for organizations, Happy Workplace or, uh, program for organizations where we help transform your organization over a four-month period. And we work with the leaders in the organization to transform the way their teams work. And it's, it's the most wonderful program that, I, that I've ever worked on and I've been working on it in the UK and Ireland for a number of years now. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can get in touch with me through, through Wake Up or through uh, Happy Workplaces Ireland, Stephen Dargan, uh, they can get in touch with me regarding that. If anybody wants to come to the conference in October, and I know everybody's thinking about I am not planning more than three minutes ahead because there's no way I'm planning anything. I think we might have picked a good time in October. Who knows? And listen, even if you bought your ticket today, and for all those who did buy the ticket for the 23rd, um, those tickets are still valued for October the 1st. And I know that if October the 1st has to be moved out, every ticket will be val- uh, validated for the next uh, stage. So nobody will ever be out of pocket. But it's a wonderful experience. Our, our Happy Workplace Conference is the most unique conference in Ireland. It's not like any other one you've been to. It's energetic, it's fun, there's lots of learning. You will love it and engage with the people that are there and you will walk away from it going, how did I not come to this before? It's brilliant. And you will learn tips and tools for the rest of, uh, of your working, uh, for your working organization and the rest of the people that you work with that can only benefit them in the future. So, yeah, and if people want to find me on LinkedIn or on, on, on Twitter, um, I'm, I'm out there in all those different areas. So, yeah. Brilliant. That's great. Thanks so much, Stephen, for your time today. I really, really enjoyed our chat. Thank you, Aoife. It was a pleasure. That was Stephen Dargan there talking about the future of work. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that podcast. Before I round up everything that Stephen said, I want to give a little bit of a shout out. So I've been keeping an eye on some of the stats uh, through SoundCloud and it tells me where people are listening from. So I wanted to give a shout out to a few a few locations rather than specific people who've been listening in. And uh, if you are listening in, I'd love to hear from you. So Clifton in New Jersey, Brooklyn, New York, Los Angeles, Dublin, of course, uh, where I'm based and Eagle Mountain in Utah. So there's some of the top cities that are listening into the podcast. And if you're from one of those places, uh, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of the podcast. Now, back to what Stephen was talking about, we started talking about being happier at work and how it's not really a fluffy thing. Actually, it results in 12% more productivity. People tend to be more creative because they're not in a stressed state and they go the extra mile as well. We spoke about the, the kind of immediate changes that can be expected as a result of the, the global pandemic. So it's where we work from. So most people at the moment are working from home and it, it shows that people can actually work from home. So ultimately, when we are in a position to go back to our offices, it's likely that people will have the opportunity to be able to work from home either some of the time or potentially even all of the time. And saves it saves time, it saves on the commute and it, it offers a lot more flexibility and autonomy in the workday. Now, this is obviously supported by the technology that exists to, to be able to facilitate people working from home. And as Stephen rightly pointed out, if we were having this conversation 25 years ago, well, first of all, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation over the Internet. It would all be, you know, phones 
uh, over phones, not even, maybe even mobile phones. Um, they were just kind of coming about at that stage. But it's the technology that supports us to be able to do that. And then the, the third aspect is really thinking about the time spent at work, meaning that there's an opportunity to reduce the number of hours. And, and we spoke at great length about the increased productivity from reducing the number of hours actually working because of the disruptions, the interruptions, the distractions that happen, whether it's in the office or whether it's through social media. One of the quite interesting things that Stephen pointed out was the importance of taking breaks and scheduling those breaks throughout the day as well. The immediate opportunity really is about questioning the way we used to work and really questioning whether that's still working for us and is there something that we can do about it. One of the phrases that he used was how efficient you aren't and that's something I thought was quite interesting as well. So rather than looking at how efficient you are, like think about what are the inefficiencies that happened when you were working and what can we do to change those? One of the other interesting ideas I thought was about this whiteboard and getting out on paper or well on a wipeable board everything that is currently not working or looking at all of the inefficiencies and really questioning what is it that we're doing and why are we doing it? I loved what he was saying as well about bullshit jobs and it's really about the essence of what it is that you do and why you do it and making sure that you have that meaning and purpose in the job that you do. And I know there's so many people out there who don't have that sense of meaning and purpose and they're not really sure what to do about it. We spoke as well about the importance of autonomy. This is something I speak about quite a lot in relation to need satisfaction. So we all have these three universal needs that need to be satisfied in order to feel motivated, in order to feel happy at work. And those are autonomy, relatedness and competence. So autonomy is having control or or choice over what it is that you do and how you do it. Relatedness then is this feeling of belonging and connection with the other people that you work with. And competence is feeling capable of doing the job that you're doing. Now, sometimes you feel too capable of doing the job and you get a bit bored and complacent, but other times you feel incapable of doing the job and you suffer a little bit from imposter syndrome, which is, again, something that I I speak about quite a lot. One of the important questions that Stephen posed as well was, what do you need to be happier at work? And is this something that you've thought about? And it really is something that leaders and employees need to think about and work together to figure out like what is it that you need and then the two points that that we spoke about at the end of the session were really about the new normal and the universal basic income so Stephen doesn't like the term new normal because this is not how we normally interact with each other humans need that social contact they need the in-person face-to-face interaction with people and not through screens I loved his ideas around the universe, universal basic income and, you know, picking an arbitrary number of a thousand euros per month. And it really allows people to find more meaning, more purpose in what it is that they do for work. And if you think about work, it's, it's really how you spend the majority of your time. And this time that we have is a really great opportunity to think about what it is that you do and how you spend that time and how you'd like to spend that time. I know for me, I've been taking some time to reflect on like, what is it that I do all day, every day? 
how do I spend my time? Who do I spend that time with? So these, it's a, it pre- presents a real opportunity to think about those important questions. So thanks very much for listening to the podcast this far. I really appreciate you listening in. If you would like to reach out to me, I'll put my details in the show notes and I will add any details from the from the podcast into the show notes as well. As I mentioned in the show today, there is a podcast, there is a Facebook group for the Happier at Work podcast. So you'll find that on Facebook by searching Happier at Work group. You can also reach out to me through LinkedIn and you'll find my website on empowermentcoaching.ie. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to the Happier at Work podcast with Aoife O'Brien. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and don't forget to rate and review the podcast.